This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, March 14th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to The Guy Benson Show, live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and the Tony Snow radio studio at Fox News. Delighted to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time. If you can't catch us live, which we do recommend, of course, but if you can't, there's a podcast for that. It is on demand. It is absolutely free every day, GuyBensonShow.com. We have a very special guest to get to here in just a moment, First, I want to bring you a Fox News alert and bring to your attention a developing story involving the crisis in Ukraine, and it hits close to home here at Fox News. The team has received an email, this was just minutes ago, from CEO Suzanne Scott, our ultimate boss here. And she wrote this letter. Dear colleagues, earlier today, our correspondent Benjamin Hall was injured while news gathering outside of Kyiv in Ukraine. We have a minimal level of details right now, but Ben is hospitalized, and our teams on the ground are working to gather additional information as the situation quickly unfolds. The safety of our entire team of journalists in Ukraine and the surrounding region is our top priority and of the utmost importance. This is a stark reminder for all journalists who are putting their lives on the line every day to deliver the news from a war zone. We will update everyone as we know more. Please keep Ben and his family in your prayers. Thank you, Suzanne. That's Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott. That's all that we know right now. But our prayers are with Ben and with his family. He has been on this program before. He's been doing remarkable work on the ground in a war zone, and we hope he's okay. And I wanted to bring that to you at the very top of the show. Howie Kurtz will join us at the start of our next hour to talk about that story and more. We'll also have Dr. Manny Alvarez here, some new COVID-related stories to get to. That is in our final hour. However, for our first hour, I am very pleased to welcome in studio for the entire hour, Bill Barr, the former Attorney General of the United States. He served, of course, under President Trump, and he's out with a new book called One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. And it's big. It is a thick book. If you're watching on the live stream at foxnation.com, you can see this is not something that is quickly written. It is not something that's quickly read. But I read the whole thing because I admire the attorney general. We have gotten to know each other just a little bit in recent years. And as I said on Special Report recently, after Brett Bayer got a crack at the (laughs) attorney general in that interview, Brett asked for our reaction. I said it's one of the few memoirs, political memoirs, that I've really looked forward to in a while in this town, and it did not disappoint. Before I get to the Attorney General, just to put my cards on the table, something that we have lamented on this show for years now is a problem that we have in our politics 
that this is not an original thought on my part, but the term is an unreliable narrator problem, where you have people in power who are not reliable narrators, fill in the blank who that might be, presidents current and past. You also have the news media, whose job it is to be a reliable narrator, and in many, many cases, they, or even we, are not. For what it's worth, in my opinion, Bill Barr is a reliable narrator, which is why I think this book is important. And I will get into what I mean by that here in the question and answer back and forth. But he's a serious person. I will admit, though, I did laugh out loud a few times reading the book, including (laughs) yesterday on the flight. People were looking at me. There are some really great anecdotes in there. Mr. Attorney General, it is great to see you. Welcome in. Thank you, Guy. It's great to be here. I want to start, as silly as it might sound, with the title, One Damn Thing After Another. It is a perfect title. It's fitting for you and your personality. It's fitting for the moment and the era in which you served. But it comes from an attorney general of many years past. Briefly explain that story, if you would. Yes. So when Ronald Reagan asked William French Smith to be his attorney general, Smith went to his uh, the, the last Republican attorney general that preceded him, Ed Levy, who was a uh, professor at the law school in Chicago and eventually head of the University of Chicago. So he was an academic and he used to wear bow ties and puff a pipe, very much the part. And William French Smith said, uh, so tell me about the position of attorney general. And he was expecting to get a long lecture about the rule of law and the unique role of the attorney general. And Levy puffed on his pipe, took it out of his mouth and said, it's one damn thing after another. (laughs) And from then on, attorneys general have always said to each other, that's what the job is, one damn thing after another. I have a feeling that mine was probably more that way than, well, that, <laughs> than most. That was my thought, right? Uh, Levy died years ago, but I yeah. wonder, you could go back and tell him, sir, you have no idea. Because reading this book, it's pretty extraordinary. When I am really enjoying a hard copy book I and preparing for an interview, I will make notes in the mm-hmm, margin. Mm-hmm. That, and occasionally, I will just draw an exclamation point on a page where Mm -hmm. I have that kind of a moment. The first exclamation point I wrote in the margin of your book was when you tell the story of how your wife found out that you were going to be Attorney General of the United States. We're skipping way ahead here, your childhood, your education, some very important roles in the Justice Department, Mm -hmm. but under President George H.W. Bush, you're going to become Attorney General. Big deal. You're a young guy for that huge position. She didn't know until? Until it was announced on the radio after I had been announced in the Rose Garden. Uh, I was 41. I had been the deputy for uh, Dick Thornburg, a former governor of uh, Pennsylvania, and he went to run for the Senate, and uh, the president called me into the Oval Office and said, uh, I'm going to make you attorney general. And um, See if you can reach your wife, but I'd like to do it in the next half hour out in the Rose Garden because we were having a ceremony out there. And those were not the days we had cell phones, so uh, she heard about it. On the car radio. In the car radio. Like I feel like you got to keep your hands at 10 and 2 at that point. Stay on the road when you hear that. It's like – and you can't even rewind it, right? It's like did I just hear that correctly? That's That's how your wife found out this huge career move had occurred for you. Now, the Bush era, because you were attorney general during – Bush 41. Yes. And there are some amazing stories in this book that we, we don't have time to get into, right. but bringing Noriega to justice. Mm-hmm. 
a guarantee that you made to a president of the United States, which is kind of a, a ballsy thing, but uh, you followed through on that guarantee. Uh, the hostage situation at a prison involving foreign nationals who were being right. housed there and the resolution to sort of like Hollywood level yeah. rescue story, yeah. uh, the colossal mistake that you call a Supreme Court nomination by President Bush. There's there's a lot of major history in there. But I want to focus at least for the remainder of this segment on really the heart and soul of the job that you had, which was prosecuting crime. This is a very hot issue once again in the United States. Right. Crime is on the rise. It was a real scourge at that time. Yes. You helped implement certain policies that you write literally reduced criminals, including hardened gang members, to tears. That's right. Talk about what you did in the 90s and then what you guys tried to do under the Trump administration as well with Relentless Pursuit and Operation Legend. Right. And where we are now, because Americans are on edge, I think, for good reason. Right. Well, uh, crime peaked in the United States in 91-92 when I was attorney general, my last year as attorney general under Bush. And it had been going up. Uh, it had almost quintupled since 1960. It had just soared. And at that time, all the states had these revolving door systems of justice. The incarceration rates were actually going down as crime skyrocketed. And uh, up until that time, the federal government had a very limited role to play in violent crime. But what I suggested uh, to first to Dick Thornburg and eventually to the president was that we lean forward and we use our tough federal laws, our gun laws – our gang laws, our RICO statutes, uh, and our drug laws for narcotics operations to go after the main violent people uh, in communities and to work with the locals on identifying them and then putting them in the federal system where they'd really get some stiff time. The story you're referring to happened with an anti-gang task force in Philadelphia. The uh, Philadelphia had, again, a revolving door system, and the, when the when the kids were arrested or the, the gang members were arrested, they'd be out on the street the next day. People wouldn't provide information. They were terrorized by them. And uh, we went in there with this program and we swept up hundreds of gang members. And one operation in particular, they were being marched through the neighborhood back to where the uh, they would be taken in, in the vans. And they were laughing and smug and because they thought this was going to be business as usual. They'd be back out there. And then when they saw that they were being taken federally in, in federal wagons, uh, one of them started crying and banging his head against the van. And I said, you know, we have a federal criminal justice system that reduces these criminals to tears. We need 50 of those systems in this country. Every state, their system should be just as tough as the federal system. And so what we did was – we leaned forward and we and we used our federal laws to incapacitate the most violent working with the locals. But we also pushed the states to reform their system. And for 22 years from that point forward, if you look at a chart of crime in the U.S., it hit a stone wall in 1992. And it went down for 22 consecutive years. It was cut in half. And it only started going up again under Obama – when people started going back to the revolving door system of justice and demonized the police. Uh, and that, of course, really got worse toward the tail end of your second stint under Trump because of right. the George Floyd riots and all of that. 
And as I was reading about these initiatives, both Trump era and Bush era, one of the concerns I had, and, and you addressed it a bit in the Trump era, of course, was a key element is working with the locals, as you right. call them, mm-hmm. at the federal level. Is that borderline impossible if you have the top prosecutors at the local level who are committed to being in some ways pro-criminal, which is what we're seeing right now? Right. So, you know, when COVID hit, even before COVID, crime had started going back up. Uh, around, uh, in the cities, in some big cities, because of these social justice DAs and the weakening of the state criminal justice system. We went into a number under uh, Operation Legend, uh, named after a little kid who was killed while he was sleeping in Kansas City. We went into uh, eight uh, cities uh, to work with the state and local to try to push crime down. Some of those cities had good prosecutors, and that was one of the reasons we were there. But we did go into some cities that were broken, like Chicago. The president wanted us to go into Chicago. And I told him the local system, the, the police were good, and the chief of police I liked there, but uh, a guy named Brown who had come up from Dallas. But uh, the prosecutors were not really prosecuting the crimes. But we did our best. Uh, to help them out. Bill Barr is my guest, former Attorney General of the United States. His new book is One Damn Thing After Another. Let's get to Russiagate and the Trump era in earnest when we return. We have him for the full hour here live in studio. It's The Guy Benson Show. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm Guy Benson. On The Guy Benson Show with me in studio live is former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr. His new book is One Damn Thing After Another. And you are, throughout this book, extremely critical of the news media. And you give some examples from your time under Bush 41 and then, of course, under Trump. And I wonder if you can pinpoint for us what you think the most unfair thing you can recall the media doing to both of your bosses at the presidential level, Bush and then Trump? Well, Bush, uh, they, they brought Bush down. Uh, Bush, Bush, after the Gulf War in March of uh, 1991, was at 89% approval rating. And through a combination of a big lie, sort of like Russiagate, the idea was that he had secretly armed Iraq and therefore doesn't deserve any credit for that victory. That was completely bogus, total lie, uh, and was proven to be uh, eventually. Uh, then they also presented him as out of touch, that he, didn't, that he had never seen a scanner in a supermarket. Again, a total lie. The video shows that he well understood what a scanner was and he was remarking at the specific technology. Right. New technology. A new technology. And then uh, the third uh, was the idea that we were in the deepest and darkest recession, even though that was 19 months of consecutive month-by-month uh, month economic growth. And, and uh, in November, after the election, the press went from 90 to 90-10 on 
bad news on the economy and immediately turned around. Uh, so it was oh, good their, news. Their yeah. guy, Bill Clinton, by that point, yeah. was elected and, president. Right. And even though he wasn't president, he started getting the credit for the turnaround. So, I mean, that was uh, – I don't remember that stuff. Yeah. I was very young and that was bad. But you write in the book, it has only gotten worse. Yes. And that brings us to the present day. What was the most unfair thing you saw? Well, it was obvious. Trump? Well, it was Russiagate. I mean, Russiagate was a, was a monstrous big lie. Uh, and it's had a lot of uh, other it, – it hobbled the administration. It deprived a duly elected president of being able to uh, run a uh, – you know, his, his uh, branch of government and execute on the policies he had promised to deliver and uh, kept, kept them on the defensive for over two years. But it had other ramifications. It fundamentally – prevented the United States from uh, a normal foreign policy engagement with Russia uh, and, uh, you know, trying to find some kind of modus vivendi with Russia. I mean, maybe it would have been possible to avoid the current circumstance. I don't know. But President Trump was unable to follow normal diplomacy with Russia because of it. We will get to more on Russiagate in the next segment. Quickly here, you had no intention of going back into government. Right. Your wife – half-jokingly said she would divorce you if you did. Right. But then you did. I did. Because you felt an obligation. You talked about the process of how that happened and bring mm -hmm. your family on board. During the confirmation process, you mentioned two U.S. senators who refused to even meet with you, almost acknowledge your existence during your confirmation process. You'd been unanimously confirmed previous time in the 90s. One of those two senators is now vice president, That's Kamala right. Harris. Just right. your reflection on that, that she wouldn't even meet with you at the time as a senator, what does that say in your mind? What did it tell you about her? Well, that, that she's hyper-partisan uh, and, and, and is not a fair-minded person. There were Democratic senators at the time who voted against you but were secretly, at least, you know, behind closed doors in Washington – Happy yes. that you were the nominee. Yes. Is is that a weird thing to, <laughs> to have people privately telling you, we're glad it's you, but we're voting no? It's a little weird, but it shows the malady uh, at work these days, which is a lack of courage. Uh, and the fact that – and this is true in both parties to some extent. You know, Politicians who want to hold their job, they're worried about getting challenged from their – from uh, in the Democrats' case from the left flank and the Republican from the right flank. So they spend all their time worried about people who are more extreme than them are. They are challenging them and taking extreme <laughs> – you know, not wanting to offend the extremists in the party. And it's come a long way. I guess it's devolved quickly in our politics. You got 100 Senate votes in the 90s, three Democrats this time right, out. Right. I was unanimously confirmed for three different positions under President Bush. And then not so much under Trump. And then <laughs> the fun began. And we will talk about Russiagate. We'll yeah. talk about the election controversies, your sparring with the president, and other non-Trump related things as well with Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General, on The Guy Benson Show, talking about his new book, One Damn Thing After Another. 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here live on the Guy Benson Show. Our guest is Bill Barr, former United States Attorney General under President Trump. His book and President George H.W. Bush, I'll add. His book is One Damn Thing After Another. Let's talk about the Trump administration, Mr. Attorney General, and Russiagate in particular. You said it was the most unfair thing done to Trump, perpetrated by many people, but including the media very much involved very invested in that mm-hmm. one thing that strikes me reading the book and just before the book just following your second stint as attorney general was a lot of the decisions that you made on important significant let's say politically sensitive matters felt kind of like a lose lose for you because if you did something that president trump wasn't going to like he would let the whole world know about it and you had an irate president sometimes picking up the phone and screaming at you or bringing you into the office and yelling at you, and you would get basically no credit for it, bank no credit with your critics and the media and the Democrats. Then if you made decisions on other matters that Trump was happy about, it was like a constitutional crisis, right? People running around with their hair on fire saying that you're just a lackey doing Trump's bidding. And this was a familiar phenomenon over and over again. One element that really frustrated Trump was decisions that you made, prudential decisions as attorney general, not to prosecute or charge certain people, like Jim Comey, for example. You say that was not a close call, in your opinion. Andrew McCabe, his deputy, did lie under penalty of perjury on multiple occasions. I know many conservatives that I speak to were frustrated that he didn't really face consequences. Why was McCabe not charged? Well, I can't get in, you know, to those to those uh, specific reasons, but uh, you know, the, there were there were good reasons why we were not able to proceed with that case. Um, I, you know, a, a well-known politician came to me after I was attorney general the first time under Bush and said that he was thinking of going in to be attorney general under W. And what did I think? And I said, you you still have political ambitions. You'd be crazy to do it. Because as attorney general, you only spend political capital. You don't make it. If you go in trying to win approval from people, you will fail. You have to be willing to make the decision knowing that people are going to be unhappy. And furthermore, of not being able to explain your decision publicly because these proceedings are usually confidential and protected by law. So uh, you, you, you by definition have to take a lot of guff. And the president didn't like some of the calls. I, and now with Comey, it had to do with his four memos and whether he had willingly disclosed classified information. Uh, and I had to uh, make these calls based on the recommendation uh, of the prosecutors and the evidence that we had and what the standards are. There's standards of when the department brings an indictment. We have to feel we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt to establish the – And you didn't. We didn't. And you didn't. It was so. that simple. And – uh, I wasn't going to bend the rules just because someone was the enemy of the president. Uh, but by the same token, 
cases were brought to me. I don't control what cases percolate up to me. Uh, and frequently, you know, the, the difficult decisions are brought to me <clears throat> and – or brought to the top. And uh, you had these two line pros- – or some line prosecutors, two of whom worked for, for Mueller who wanted to uh, impose like a seven to nine-year penalty on Roger Stone. Right. You talk about that whole right. experience yeah. as well. And you said that's also not fair. Right. And you were ripped apart on the left – for that decision, right. and you explain how you reached that conclusion right. as well in the book, and in, the judge, you know, agreed with yeah, you. Yeah, right. Uh, so, you were just sitting prior to our interview in our green room here yeah. at the Fox News bureau, and it is named after our late great colleague Charles Krauthammer, yes, who coined the term Bush derangement syndrome. <laughs> there was a lot of Trump derangement syndrome out there for sure, still is. Yes, I came around to the view that there was also Barr derangement syndrome. And I came to that conclusion when you put out your memo summarizing the top-line conclusions of the Mueller report, and people absolutely lost their minds. Right. And then we read the report, what, a few weeks later, and it was absolutely accurate. And to this day, it is an article of faith in the mainstream media and on the left that you misled the country – if not outright lied about what Mueller said, I, I don't understand how sentient, literate people can believe that. I know that Mueller kind of put out that weird letters right. feeding into that. Yeah. My theory of the case, and I'd like your reaction, is these people were so invested on Trump being guilty that the facts made them very upset and very angry that – they didn't lead to the conclusion, to the outcome that they were rooting for. And so they just pounded the table and you were the scapegoat. I, I can't think of any logical reason why that moment resulted in this torrent of criticism about something that was accurate. I mean, I'm, right. to this day, I don't it, get it. it. It is a mystery, but I agree uh, they wanted – they thought that Russiagate was going to knock Trump out of office and they thought that uh, Mueller was going to be the instrument of that. And they were very angry that there was a no collusion finding and also that he punted on the issue of obstruction and they had a tantrum. And as you know, I had asked Mueller to give me the report so I could put it out quickly. He didn't. And which meant there was going to be weeks delay of, of redaction. He agreed to it. He agreed to yes. it and then didn't do it. He didn't do it. So when I got the report, we're talking about a two or three week period where I where where we couldn't put out the report. The feeding frenzy. And and in fact, that Friday, people were saying, "Oh, uh, if unless the Justice Department puts it right out, it must mean that he's a criminal and the, you know he's going to jail, he's going to jail, and so forth." And the stock market would be affected. Our foreign policy would be affected. So I had to at least give the bottom line. And as you say, no one was no one was misled. I accurately said that he did not exonerate uh, the president. You even included that yeah, include weird line that, of theirs, right? And I included that weird line. Uh, and then, and I in my book, I go over the headlines of the next day, which were clearly not misled. They said, you know, uh, there was no collusion, but the story's more complicated on obstruction. Barr says he's not exonerated, and so forth. So, you know, I it. It was a tantrum. It was a tantrum. Are you surprised that John Durham's investigation is still going? No, not really, because uh, 
see, people have to understand that he didn't get the the IG's report on Crossfire Hurricane until December of 2019. Uh, and uh, so he, he came in in, in – uh, really got going April, May time frame, but it was focused on sort of little bunny trails that we had to clean up while we waited for the IG's report to be finished. So at the end of 2019, he gets the IG's report, which is all about the Inspector, FBI, General. The Inspector General, all about the FBI and, and, and the spying and so forth. And he gets to work on that. And then three months later, we have COVID. The grand juries across the country are shut down. So that delayed a lot of things. Plus, he's looking in the term that you've used in interviews is his job, Durham, his task with the full waterfront of how we got to this whole Russia right. insanity to begin with. So there's a lot to chase down. You have been insistent, as you were just there, that the Trump campaign was spied upon. Right. It seems like more evidence has emerged of that recently. Yep. Just to give a sense of why the, the book title is so apropos, one damn thing after another. You write that on July 24th, Mueller testifies before Congress, 2019. He did not do well, in my view. It was clear. It landed with a thud. This thing's over. Right. You guys clink glasses at the (laughs) DOJ that night. Finally, we're freaking done with this stuff. The next day was the Zelensky phone call. That's right. And off to the races on the first impeachment. Wild. Not not the second impeachment, which which I want to get to here. Right. 2020 election, you insist and you make the case that Trump beat himself. Um, and you talk about how you try to intercede with the president from time to time and say, hey, you know, you really ought to consider this. Often it fell on deaf ears. You walked out of a gathering watching the first presidential debate. You were so frustrated and disgusted by the way that was going. Ultimately, what happened happened. Trump lost the election. A lot of people have asked you, because your relationship with the president became frayed toward the end. Yes. Famously. Um, You've come on a lot of different shows, TV, radio, et cetera. People ask you all about January 6th, President Trump, 2024. You've talked about, you know, what you might consider doing in 2024. I guess the question that I have for you, and I'm just going to this portion of the book. So let's see, page 548, you talk about the president not appreciating the reality of the situation of the election. Mm-hmm. Page 551, you talk about, I'll just quote, after the election, he, Trump, was beyond restraint. He would only listen to a few sycophants who told him what he wanted to hear. Reasoning with him was hopeless. Uh, skipping ahead just a couple of pages, 557, you say that the treatment of the president, of the then vice president, Mike Pence, was despicable. It's a very strong word. And you even put out a statement just after January 6th, saying that this was a betrayal of his office, his office, Trump's office. And yet you have said that if he were the nominee for the party again in 2024, you would support him because of all the problems that you have with the left. And I think you and I agree on almost every point about how this administration is a disaster. But there is sort of a a fitness for office question and some of the stuff that you write, really tough stuff about the way that he behaved in his psychology, people have wondered, how is that not disqualifying in your mind, having been on the inside? How would you answer that question? Why is that stuff in your mind not disqualifying? Well, he, he as I've said, his, his, some of his traits that are bad, like his impulsiveness, also had a good side to them. 
and it, it added to the decisiveness and the, and the dynamism of the administration. And as long as there were people around cabinet secretaries and White House staff who could you know, prevent him from you know, taking things too far or, or going off in some cockamamie direction, things were pretty much on track. And up until the election, I was fairly satisfied with the record. I thought it was a successful administration. In well, even when you resigned in your letter, yes. you listed accomplishments, and he told you, this is the best list of accomplishments that I've seen right. summarized. And yeah. you were like, under your breath, maybe we should have run on this and not all this other craziness. Oh, right. Uh, and uh, I, I think that he was shocked by he, – he persuaded himself that he was going to win at the end because of the size of the crowds. I don't know what was going on in his mind, but you know there were people who were very forcefully uh, presenting the idea that he had uh, that you know there had been fraud, and I think that he made a, a shameful mistake, which is to encourage this mob to go up to Capitol Hill in order with this crazy idea that it could be turned around somehow. Well, he January. believed that he had won at least for a while. You said he believed that he was going to serve another term. That's that what he. he that's how he appeared to me. I mean, that seems yeah. like a a disconnect from the reality, though. Well, yeah, I don't know what was going on, you know, whether, whether uh, you know, he really believed it or not. I really can't say. But uh, there were a lot of people telling him that and that it was stolen. And, and uh, you know, he persuaded himself that there was some opportunity to try to turn that around. I – if if – and, and as I said, I will support somebody else for the nomination and, and do what I can because I think it's a great opportunity for the Republican Party to really have a transforming election. But if he's the nominee, I, it, it's hard for me to conceive that I would not vote for the Republican nominee uh, if it meant – if the alternative was a, was a Democrat that was under the control of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think uh, I'd weigh all the – relative risks and it would be uh, a choice between two very unsatisfactory options. Uh, but I would – in the case of uh, Trump uh, in another term, I would have to count ultimately on the people who are around him in the cabinet uh, and on the staff to uh, make sure that he stays on track. No round three for you? No way. At Main Justice? <laughs> no way. One of the people that comes up in the book a number of times, another cabinet secretary under President Trump that you seem to have a great amount of respect and affection for is someone that I know a little bit as well, Secretary Pompeo. Yes. There's no real secret that he is thinking about running for president. Um, he has not ruled out even challenging President Trump in a primary potentially. Is he someone that you could envision supporting in a Republican primary for president? Yes. I've had a long associate – not a long, but I mean I've – uh, when he was director of the CIA, I was on his external advisory board and then he was a colleague in the cabinet. And I have tremendous respect for him and given the dangers around the world, you know, he'd be a very formidable candidate for president and, and someone who I think would make a great president. And I think that's one of the things that I'm uh, concerned about with Trump is that uh, we have a great uh, stable of excellent people that could be president. Uh, Pompeo is one, but there are others too, senators and governors and so forth, and it's time to give one of them a chance. Very quickly before this break, there's so much drama, there's so much rancor, there is also a lot of success in the Trump administration. On balance, looking back, 
you didn't want the job. You finally decided that you would accept the job. Are you glad that you did? I, I wouldn't say I, I, I was glad that I did. It's always an honor to serve the country, and I'm glad in that respect. Uh, Do you regret taking the job? No, I don't regret taking the job. Uh, I, I was very disappointed because I think the president, because uh, uh, of his inability to control himself, uh, uh, blew the election. He could have won that election, and he didn't, and a lot was riding on it. Uh, but I also, when I look back, we accomplished a lot. And I had the opportunity of uh, working with some fantastic people at the department and in the administration. And I don't regret that experience. Bill Barr, my guest here in studio, One Damn Thing After Another is the book. It's a bestseller. And we will wrap things up. One more segment with the Attorney General when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show, One Damn Thing After Another, the new book by two-time U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, who joins me in studio. He's been here the whole hour. We only have a few minutes left, so quickly to conclude, your family must be delighted and relieved that this is all over. What is your uh, happiest indulgence now that you're out of public life and all this craziness, or at least out of office, where you can go back to something that you really enjoy and relax doing? Well, I'm going to brush up on my bagpiping. You know, that's something I've done since I was eight. That was going to be my last question. I had a a bagpipe question. I swear it's written down right here. So go on. Yeah, so since I was eight, I've played, and and I'm going to uh, get back into it. And uh, now that I have the leisure time to do that, uh, and I go hunting. Uh, Two of my daughters like shooting with me. So uh, you have in the middle of the book. A lot of photographs, right, with yeah. you and various uh, you know, important people. And I was hoping that because you have a, a do you have a piping yes. photo of yourself, bagpiping at thirteen years old, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I almost got the sense, given the number of times you mentioned bagpiping in this book, that if you had your druthers, you bagpiping would have been on the cover of this book. That's is like that's a, true. That's how, true. Quickly, how did you get into that? I just love the sound, and that's one of the interesting things about it. I. Uh, my father bought a record, and I heard it. And I just, I, I was like, mesmerized. I, 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 I need that. to do that. I need to do that, and I've loved it ever since. So. Well, maybe we can do a live performance <laughs> on the air one of these days. <laughs> okay. Bill Barr was the attorney general under two presidents here in the United States of America. Most recently, of course, President Trump. His new best-selling book, "One Damn Thing After Another." Mr. Attorney General, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Guy. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Easing into a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our second of three, the 4 p.m. Eastern hour between three and six every weekday. The Guy Benson Show is on the air and also free as a podcast on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com for all of your program-related needs. You can also follow us on social at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, or me personally and or me personally. Guy Benson Show or at Guy P. Benson, also for Twitter and for Instagram. Same handle. Fox News alert as we get into this middle hour. 
The Dow with a strong day, closing up 652 points, ending at 33,285. Coming up in the next hour, General Jack Keane, four-star retired U.S. general. He will be here with the very latest on Ukraine. The Pentagon is currently briefing with John Kirby. We're keeping an eye on that. And we begin, and we're actually going to spend this whole hour on this next topic. And we're going to do an hour on it because I want to spend a good chunk of that hour hearing from you. We're going to take phone calls at 833-456-1300. You can write it down right now, toll free. We'll get to your calls after we sort of set everything up. I'll ask a question. But if you have a pen, you can just jot it down if you want to. Commit it to memory. 833-456-1300. I'll mention it again a bit later. There was a poll from Quinnipiac. Quinnipiac University has got their pollster. We cite them uh, from time to time. And they were asking the American people about the fight in Ukraine and the war that Russia is waging against the people of Ukraine, the government of Ukraine. And there was stuff about, you know, do you support Joe Biden's approach? Do you support uh, a fight against Russia if they attack a NATO country? They had a lot of questions that were sort of standard. Then they asked a very interesting additional question. Quote, as the world witnesses what is happening to Ukraine, Americans were asked what they would do if they, meaning we, were in the same position as Ukrainians right now. If the United States of America were invaded by a foreign power, the question was this, would you stay and fight the invading enemy? Or would you leave the country? Because we're seeing millions of Ukrainians fleeing, right? Refugees trying to get to Poland and other neighboring countries to get to safety, to avoid the humanitarian disaster. I mean, there was an attack on a maternity hospital. There are children dying in the port city in the south, Mariupol. I mean, it's just awful. So you've got children, you've got women, you've got other people leaving the country. Of course, you have many staying and fighting and taking up arms and attacking the Russians. So this hypothetical scenario painted for Americans by Quinnipiac's pollster, they asked a representative sample of the American people, if this were to happen here, what would you do? Would you stay and would you fight or would you leave the country? Now, I have a few thoughts on that. I want to sort of flesh it out a little bit. But first, let me tell you about what the responses were. And I think some of the responses were very interesting, to put it lightly. Overall, these are adults in America. A majority, 55% of Americans said they would stay and fight the invading enemy. 55%, whereas 38% said they would leave the country. Those are the two options. Now, the breakdown on sex is a major one. 70% of men, 7 out of 10 men in the country said, I would stay, I would fight. With less than a quarter saying they would leave. 24%. Women, a majority said they would leave the country. 52%. Whereas 40% of American women told Quinnipiac they would stay to fight the invading force. Now, let's look at this through a partisan lens. They broke it down, Republican, Democrat, Independent. 
So the group most likely to say that they would stay in the USA and fight, fight whoever was invading us, were Republicans. 68% of Republicans say they would stay and fight. 25% said they would leave. Then you have independents. Sort of like a similar breakdown, not quite as robust in the stay and fight category, but close. 57%, a clear majority. 57% of independents said they would stay, they would fight for America, whereas 36%, a little over one out of three independents would leave. Then we have our Democratic friends. A majority of Democrats said they would leave the country rather than take up arms to defend her. 52% of Democrats say they would leave. 40% say they they would stay. So that's a 12-point gap, 40 to 52% against staying to fight for America. Now, part of that could be related to the previous demographic we were just talking about, men versus women. There's a big gender gap in this country. Men are much more Republican. Women are more Democratic. So if you have a lot more women in the Democratic Party, you're going to have more of them saying, I'm going to leave. Because, by the way, there are differences in the desires and choices of men and women and the biology of men and women. And so if most American women say they're going to leave and Democrats skew more heavily female, it would make sense that that would be borne out in the data. That's only part of it, though. I mean, we've seen women doing their part for the war effort in Ukraine, for example. So 68 percent, nearly 70 percent of Republicans say they would stay and fight an invading force if we were invaded in the United States. Almost six out of 10 independents said the same thing, but a majority, 52 percent of Democrats said they would leave. I'd love to know where they would go. That's maybe a follow up question for another day. Two more demographics to look at here. Age and then race. Let's start with race. So by a 22-point margin, white Americans say they would stay and fight, 57 to 35, as opposed to leaving the country, 57-35. Among black Americans, it's flipped, 38% stay, 59% leave. Hispanic Americans, much closer to the Republican numbers, 61% of Hispanics in this country asked the question, said they would stay in the United States and fight for the United States against this uh, outside force that had invaded us. This is obviously very hypothetical. 61% versus 33% who would leave. So that's uh, basically a two-to-one margin. In fact, Hispanics have the biggest margin to stay and fight of any of the three ethnic groups or racial groups, rather, that were polled. And then on age... Senior citizens, so above 65, it's still a majority who would stay and fight, 52-37. I think that when you're talking about vulnerable people in society, I think the more vulnerable you are or the more likely you are to be caring for vulnerable people like children, the more likely it might make sense to think about leaving. So seniors are saying 52-37, they would stay and fight, but that's a pretty big number who would leave. In the 50 years old to 64 years old range, it's two-thirds say they would stay, 28% would leave. 35 to 49, my age range, it's 57-37, so a 20-point margin to stay and fight. The youngest Americans, the most able-bodied, the military age demographic, 18 to 34, 
It's the only age group that would leave. A plurality of young Americans would not stay and fight for the country. 48% would leave. 45% would stay. So it's closely divided, but a few more say they would leave than fight. And these would be the most sort of eligible fighters, the most formidable fighters potentially, at least in theory, physically speaking. There's probably a whole rabbit hole we could go down thinking about the ages here and why young Americans are least likely to want to fight for this country in this hypothetical poll. Again, this is anonymous. You're just telling a pollster. Someone invades the United States. Do you fight them or do you leave? I mean, if you are inclined to tell the truth, I mean, you have almost four out of ten Americans volunteering that they would get out rather than stay and fight, including most young people. What has been taught to young people, what has been inculcated within young Americans, within that demographic, that would lead them to that conclusion, I wonder. So, I mean, it's it's a pretty staggering poll. I think it's a very interesting question. I wasn't expecting to see it in this survey. I would note that one of the questions in the poll unrelated to this was if the Russians were to attack a NATO ally, should the U.S. respond militarily to Russia? By the way, that would be our obligation under the treaty. And it was a huge, overwhelming yes from the American people. Seventy nine percent of Americans said, yes, we should respond militarily if that were to happen, including 88 percent of Democrats. Now, I don't want to just pick on Democrats here, but I would like to Maybe read some interviews with Democrats, 88 percent of whom say, yes, we should fight militarily against Russia over there if they hit a NATO ally. I agree, by the way, that's the treaty. That's the mutual defense pact that we have entered into. And it is solemn and it is serious. And that Article 5 of NATO has been invoked one time ever on behalf of us after 9-11. So if the Russians attack someone over there, I think we'd have an obligation to go and fight the Russians. That hasn't happened. We pray to God that will never happen. 88% of Democrats and 80% of the American people generally say, yes, we should. But only 40% of Democrats say they'd be willing to fight for the country here at home if we were invaded. I just want to know what the calculus is there. Like, yes, let's go fight Russia there under these circumstances. But if a foreign army shows up on our shores, you're going to leave and not fight? I, I, I struggle with that one, I have to confess. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, I kind of want to go around the horn here at the show, our team, just to get a sense of what they might do. Then I'm going to repeat the phone number, and we're going to get to your phone calls as well on this subject. Absolutely fascinating, fairly provocative, certainly thought-provoking for me, hypothetical poll question from Quinnipiac. Phone number 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. We will explore this further and get your take as we continue on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. It's The Guy Benson Show. We're talking about this poll out this week. If America were invaded by a foreign enemy... Would you stay and fight the enemy on behalf of the United States, or would you leave the country? 
The poll showed 55% of Americans said they would stay and fight. 38% would leave. I would add a few other options here, by the way, when we start having this conversation in earnest, if you're going to sort of play this out in your mind. I think you can stay and fight, take up arms, be at the front lines. I think there would also be an option to stay in the United States and help the war effort in other ways, like we've seen some of the people building the bombs and the Molotov cocktails in Ukraine, that sort of thing. You could probably also stay in the United States and not be involved at all in the war effort, just sort of be neutral, I guess. And then, of course, you could leave the country. The poll only asks two options. Would you stay and fight or would you leave? I'm adding a few other potential selections there because I think there's different calculations for different people. Are you potentially struggling with a disability? Do you have young kids, right? I don't think there's a a right answer for every single person. I think overall there's a right answer, by and large, generally speaking. But I'll, I'll hold on to that for now. Keep my powder dry for now. And just to make this a little bit more specific and explicit, right now in our moment in history, I think the only thing we'd be talking about here is China. In terms of manpower, a huge army, the People's Liberation Army, Designs on global hegemony, uh, hegemony. I think right now, realistically, the only country that would even possibly in a remote setting, remote possibility, consider something like this right now would be the CCP in China. So if that's what happened, we were in a huge global war with them. Again, this is a very dark scenario. And they decided they were going to come and invade the United States of America. What would you do? My dad is listening. He texted me during the commercial break. He's shocked by this poll. Shocked. He said his vote would be women and children welcome to leave. Single women also welcome to stay and fight. Males under 18 and over 65 could leave. All other males, 16 plus, welcome to stay and fight. He said he would stay and fight. And he's... He's astonished that the number of people responding that they would leave the country is as high as it is, 38% according to this poll. So before we get to your phone calls on this question, I just want to quickly talk to the team here. Options again are stay, pick up arms, and fight the enemy to defend the homeland. Stay and help the war effort in another way. Stay and do nothing or leave, leave the country. Quiet, Wyatt, what is your inclination? Well, I am now war, Wyatt. Right. But I would I would definitely stay. Um, I would not flee the country, but I, I don't think I would go on the front lines. I don't know if that's necessarily my expertise, but I think I would help out in other ways, like maybe manning the desk at the Fox News channel, you know, being on manning the turrets there. I think that's that would be my skill set that I would be able to uh, give better than being on the front lines. Dan, what would you do? Um, I have a lot of military history in my family, and uh, I always regretted not joining the military. So I, I ha- it's one thing to say, but I, I, I think I would stay and fight. I think that would be my, my decision. All right, Christine, what would you do? First, I would have to get Megan, you know, somewhere safely, and then I think I would come back. Not only would I come back and fight, Guy, I would come back and head down to you, and I would fight with you together because we're no, best no, friends. Thank you. No, we're, we're just not really great under pressure over there, and I could just imagine it not going well. Maybe we could put you in the cavalry division. You could get on one of your favorite ponies and charge. 
toward the enemy. But I think in all seriousness, not to make too much light of it, you have a young daughter. I mean, you would what? Make sure that she was somewhere safe and then what? join the literal resistance, not the you know political resistance, the resistance resistance. I, I think in some way I would stay if I couldn't just, you know, necessarily fight myself. I would do something to help the efforts. Um, maybe I could pass if it out, meant like, if it meant making sure that your daughter was safe and the only option to keep her safe was to leave. Would you leave? Yes, of course. OK. OK. So, I mean, again, I, I, there's no shame in some of the answers that you might give. Now, I, look, if you're. If you're someone who hates this country and you want to leave because you hate it and you're rooting for the enemy, I would say, yes, shame on you. But under this scenario, I didn't come up with it. This was a Quinnipiac poll nationwide. If America were invaded by an enemy, what would you do? The phone number here at The Guy Benson Show is 833-456-1300. Toll free. 833-456-1300. I want to hear from you. You can say if you're male or female, your approximate age range, what would you do? Stay and fight? Stay and do something else? Or leave the United States if, let's say, Beijing decided to attack us? Your phone calls straight ahead. 833-456-1300 on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. 833-456-1300. Your toll-free connection here to the Guy Benson Show. Every phone line is full that we have here. We're packed. But keep calling because we're going to get to these calls here in a moment. If you're just joining us, the topic at hand today is this. Quinnipiac Poll asks Americans if we were invaded... This is a hypothetical situation here, of course, at home. It is not at all hypothetical in Ukraine. We're seeing what's happening in Ukraine. If we were invaded, like Ukraine has been invaded, the question was, would you stay and fight for your country against the invading force, or would you leave the country? And there's a few other options, I would say, on the table as well. What would you do? I've thought a lot about this in the last few days. I want to hear from you. 833-456-1300. Let's get going and let's start out in California. Kelly, you are up first on The Guy Benson Show. Hi. Hi, Guy. I absolutely love your show. And I wanted to tell you I would absolutely stay, stay, take up arms, and protect my homeland against any invading force. Did you have... Any second thoughts about that when you first heard this question? Absolutely not. I live in a community here where um, we support America and the flag, and we are very, very strong patriots here in Paso Robles, California. Well, Kelly, I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad you're listening. Thank you for listening. And a strong first call on this question, 833-456-1300. Would you stay and fight? Would you do something else to contribute maybe? Would you try to stay neutral or would you leave? Faced with just those top options of staying and fighting and leaving, the poll of Americans says 55% would stay, 38% would leave. What about you and why? 833-456-1300. Sean is calling from Fort Worth, Texas. Sean, welcome. Hey, 
Thanks, guy. I really appreciate it. Love the show. Um, just Thank wanted you. to say I would definitely stay and fight for uh, our country and our flag. I've had every family member that's a male in my family has been in the military except for me. And um, I feel a grave duty to defend this country if anything were to come over here. And I've actually been trying to volunteer to go and fight over there in Ukraine. But unfortunately, I've had no success getting a hold of the embassy as you know, you you would know that the calls and the the website is just totally flooded. So yeah, you know, I would do. Wow. I would so so do you've been part. you've been actively reaching out, maybe contemplating a way where you could go over to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians. If that's the case, Sean, then this is a no brainer. If if the danger were here at home, uh, you would obviously be you know and one I, of the first people I, to I sign up. I, I can't think of an American person that wouldn't want to stay and defend their country as much freedom as they have here. And then they're seeing freedom trying to be stripped away from another country that people, you know, that that love freedom and love Americans. I mean, come on. It's a no brainer, of course. Yeah. I mean, four out of 10 Americans, almost 38 percent apparently disagree uh, based on this poll. Sean, you are in the majority, though, in that poll result down there in Texas. Thank you, Sean. Appreciate it. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Give us your answer, what you would do under this scenario if we were invaded, and then maybe help us understand your thought process. 833-456-1300. Let's go next to Denise down in Florida, Vero Beach. Denise, welcome. Glad you called. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you. I would stay in fight alongside my husband with my two children. We wouldn't go anywhere. How old roughly are your kids? I have a 31 and a 32-year-old. And you're confident the four of you would just be a a mean, lean fighting force down in there in Florida as a family unit? We would be a family unit. Um, We have our own guns, and I can't say that we, we would be on the front lines um, because that wouldn't be our expertise, but we would we would defend anyone that came and we would help wherever help was needed. All right, Denise. Appreciate that phone call. Uh, enjoy the warm weather down there in free Florida. I'm a little jealous. Denise in Florida on the Guy Benson Show, 833-456-1300. Whenever one call is over and we drop the call, that line immediately fills up. So keep trying. 833-456-1300. Let's go out to Washington State, Spokane, Troy. Hello, sir. I would absolutely stay and fight. I would make sure that my uh, my ex-wife and my child and my fiancé all got out safely, and I would go wherever the help was most needed. Well, that's uh, very gallant of you, even with your ex. I think there's some people out there who'd say, I'd, I'd make sure my ex went to the front lines. But you would make sure people close to you are safe. Then you would fight. I do want to ask you, because you mentioned your fiancé, you mentioned your ex, you mentioned your child. How old's your kid? Eight years old. Okay. What would be your expectation for, like, women in this case? Or, you know, what would be the youngest? Like, if this was an existential threat to America with a foreign invasion, would it be 18-year-olds or up? What about, you know, 16? I think, you know, at some point in, in Ukraine, they're, they're emptying prisons, you know, of prisoners come help us. What do you think would be the appropriate thing to try to repel an invasion? Well, you know, I, I, I'm, I've always been, you know, just uh, freedom, period, you know, and, and I, I would encourage 
anyone of able body and, and age to, to stand up and fight for our freedom, as our forefathers did, and uh, and as my grandfather did in World War II. Um, I, you know. I wouldn't say that we would need to. I would hope that we wouldn't need to force people to do it. I would hope that they would stand up and do the right thing. All right, Troy. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. Eight three three four five six thirteen hundred. Interesting calls, and I love the the insight, the windows into how people are thinking and why they're thinking that way. Let's see, Connecticut. You're up next, Waterbury. It's John calling into the Guy Benson Show. John, what do you think about this? Good afternoon, Guy. Long time listener, first time caller. Awesome. I mean, Thank you. One thing that one thing that no one's brought up: our citizens are armed, not like anybody else around the world. We're armed. Or maybe some might be illegally, but there are a bunch that are legal. And I think if it came down to defending your property and people that you care about, you would dive in it head first and not even think about it. You know, John, I think this is a really important point about the nature of the American people. If you're a foreign government or some foreign military and you're thinking about coming to this country to try to occupy this country, you are making, in my view, a huge mistake. We are we are people who jealously guard our liberties and our freedom. I mean, hell, we we show up and make a bit of a ruckus at a school board meeting if we feel like they're doing the wrong thing. If you're invading us to come take over this country on our soil on our ground and to your point with the amount of people in this country who aren't just armed but armed to the teeth with a lot of training not just military and ex-military veterans law enforcement just private citizenry you are in for one hell of a nightmare if you try that here that's just my little public service announcement for the chinese by the way for the chinese government in case they're listening uh go ahead john last word there not like i said i mean any American fight to protect their homeland. That's what freedom's all about. Yep. Amen. I like that. John, appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Let's see. Matt calling from Georgia, our affiliate down there, 106.3 Extra. Matt, glad you're here. I would absolutely stay and fight. And if these cowards that want to leave our country... Bye. You have just lost your citizenship and all rights to this country. My son is currently stationed in South Korea. He would absolutely fight. My daughter, my granddaughter, my wife, everybody else in my family would stay and fight. And as far as the ages go, if you're going to stay, something is going to be done to contribute to those efforts, whether it's stitching clothing, preparing food, whatever it may be. It's going to happen. Yeah, I th- and God, I think that last point. Anybody ever tries to come into this country, you will suffer a horrendous fate. Yep, I, I think that's exactly right. And your last point there was, I think, a really good one. There are ways to contribute and to help and be a patriot that doesn't necessarily involve, you know, learning how to use an AR-15 and going and following some military commander. You can do, and we. this was like an all-in effort in World War II, right? Rosie the Riveter, all of that. I think that's what would be necessary for this uh, insurgency, or a true resistance here at home. If anyone dared to come here, and if they were able to succeed on any level getting here, uh, there would be hell to pay because of people like we just heard from Matt and his son who's deployed. And by the way, thank him, Matt, please, for his service. Good call. 833-456-1300. The calls are just flowing in. 
Let me put out the question one more time. We'll take a very short break and we'll come back and get into as many calls as we can here. If the United States were invaded, if you were in the position that the Ukrainians are right now, not so hypothetical, right? They're not hypothetical at all. Terribly, awfully real. If that were here, would you stay and fight? Would you stay and contribute? Would you leave? A poll recently showed that a majority, but not a huge majority of Americans said they would stay and fight the enemy. A lot of people say they would leave. What would you do? Think about it. Let us know. 833-456-1300. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. Quinnipiac, the pollster, asked the American people, produced this week a new poll. If the U.S. were invaded like Ukraine's been invaded, would you fight? Would you stay here and fight the invading force or would you leave the country? Those were the two options that they gave. And the answers were 55 to 38 percent. They would stay. Every age group would stay and fight except for the youngest Americans, a slight plurality of whom would leave the country. That's what they volunteered to a pollster. What would you do? That's our question here. 833-456-1300. Back to the very busy phones. Packed lines. Amelia, listening on the Fox app, is in Utah. Amelia, very glad you called. Hey, love your show and your team. Uh, Say, I would stay in support, uh, of course, in any way I could. Uh, Maybe America needs to make a few improvements, but we are still the best that there is. But what's disconcerting and I don't understand is this 38 percent. Where are they going to go? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) just logistically speaking, Canada. I mean, some could maybe get to Canada, but that's a lot of people. That would be off the top of my head, more than 100 million people. It's like, oh, you're going to head for the exits because we're under siege. I mean, good question. Where are you going to go? Thanks for that call, Amelia. Appreciate it. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Carlo in Pennsylvania. Carlo, what would you do? Well, you could find me in central Pennsylvania. I'm ready. I'm a physician assistant, and uh, I'll be glad to put on a trauma pack and grip a gun for our country to continue the fight for freedom. Oh, so that's actually – so you are in the medical profession. So almost – I mean, look, we would probably need medics. I mean, this is a, a very macabre intellectual exercise that we're engaged in here, but we would need medics, and it sounds like you'd be – You'd be signing up to do that as soon as possible? Absolutely. I, I think it would be a great opportunity. Um, uh, there was, there'd be nothing I would do uh, to help with this country. Okay. Good call. Carla, thank you out there. Uh, thank you for being out there. Glad you're out there. Keep it up. Thank you for listening as well. 833-456-1300 here at The Guy Benson Show. Let's see. Let's head to the Deep South. Alabama, JR, you are up next, sir. How are you doing, guy? I appreciate you taking my call today. Um, sure. I, I just wanted to say I'm a, I'm a, a two-time vet, a uh, war vet, um, once in Kosovo, Albania in 99 when it kicked off. Uh, I was with 5th Corps Artillery out of Germany. And, again, in 2003 to, to crit Iraq with 124 signal out of Fort Hood, Texas. Um, well, thank you. Thank it, you for that. Here, absolutely. Here's the deal. If you don't pick up arms against an invader, you're going to become a citizen of that nation. I mean— if you want to become a citizen of whatever nation is invading us, that's up to you. 
but as a as a citizen of this nation, you need to fight for this nation. And you had another caller that said it, and I applaud them for this. There's other ways of giving. You know, if you watch these videos of the Ukrainians right now, there's old women who are sewing um, yep. fabric to make camouflage. You know, there's a way to give to your country, whether it's fight or not. You know, and yep, I, I, I also go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, please, please finish the thought. Well, I also want to say that, you know, demographics aside, I, I, I do want to say that I think the generation is what your percentages are based off of when you look at who would fight and who wouldn't. You know, younger generation, more would leave. But that younger generation didn't grow up in the 70s and 80s with the Cold War. You know, I'm, I'm a younger generation. I was born in 79 and 42 years old. I grew up at the very tail end of it. But I had that history, and I still had that media coming at me, and, and mm-hmm. we knew what standing up for the country was about. You know, we had 9-11. Everybody was patriotic. Give it five years, nobody cares anymore. You know, and that's, that's my big problem is people not wanting to fight for what they believe in. And I also think, Jr. your point was a really important one because we've done this sort of hypothetically and generically. I think if it were a specific threat from a specific enemy, like let's say it was China, I wonder if the poll results would change. People knowing what it would mean to become basically against your will a subject of Beijing and what that would entail, what that would mean for you, what that would mean for your freedoms and your lifestyle would not be a pretty picture at all from an American perspective. And as you said, do you want to fight for what we have here or do you want to just allow a foreign invader to come over and take over your life? I think if there was an actual face to that opposition and what that would mean for you, maybe the numbers could change. I don't know. Jr. thank you for your service. Thank you for listening. Thank you for that phone call. 833-456-1300. Let's go to Kansas in the heartland. Tim, you're up, sir. Hi, how are you today? Very well, how thank you. How are you today, guy? Good. Hey, uh, doing well. Yeah, I was very surprised by the uh, by the outcome of that. Fifty-five uh, percent, very low. Um, it's astonishing, really. I uh, I served in the military in eighty-one to eighty-seven. I was in thank the Air you. Force in a non-combat position. Uh, I was a fireman, and I would do anything to protect my country and my homeland. Um, in uh, in World War II, when Jap- Japan invaded the United States, one admiral said, "I'm afraid we've awakened a sleeping giant," and another one had said, "The reason they didn't invade the home or or uh, the mainland is the mainland is because there would be a gun behind every blade of grass." And which is correct. So they they bombed us. We weren't ready. They got out, and then we ended up sacrificing an enormous amount to win that war. But, yeah, I mean, it's like if you want to think about this, you want to even contemplate it, good luck. The American people are not going to stand for it, and it would be a very painful experience, I think, anyone trying to occupy this country. And I can't get to all of these calls, but I see Joe and Christian, Chris, Howard, Teresa, Dave, Tony, Greg, appreciate all of you calling in on this topic. I'll just say this to close out the hour for me. We talk a lot about this being the greatest country in the history of the world, the last great hope for mankind and freedom. In my view, you either believe that or you don't. It's not just words. It's actually meaningful. It means something. And if that's put to the test, you fight for it. 
That's what I would do. I'm not an expert. I've never even fired a gun. I might be useless with a gun, but I would do everything my country asked of me to fight for this country because ultimately that's what this comes down to, and you have to believe what you say, and I do. I know what our next guest would do. Jack Keane, up next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. We are into the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every day. GuyBensonShow.com. If you miss any of the show as we air, podcast free, on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is terrific. You should try it out if you haven't already. If you're 21 plus only, TheLongDrink.com. They're expanding eight new states in the last few weeks. Still more to come. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. Well, as we begin our final hour, I want to delve into a few issues that would qualify as woke tales for sure. But for this first topic, I don't want to play the woke tales jingle because I feel like this is actually too serious for that. We will get to it probably in the next segment with a few other more run-of-the-mill examples But this is alarming, what I'm about to read to you. We quote with some regularity on this show Barry Weiss's substack called Common Sense. And she's done very well since she left the New York Times, citing a stifling environment of left-wing bullying. She's a left-of-center person, but she's kind of made it a mission in her life to fight back against the hardcore, so-called progressive, woke radicals. And I admire her very much for that. And when she has certain people that she brings in to publish their work on academia, on medicine, on corporate America, there's a whole array of elements of our society that are being penetrated and slowly taken over by this really totalitarian mindset. And when it's worthwhile, we bring you some of those instances, and we quote from her work or the work that she publishes on her platform. Today is one of those days. Headline is, the takeover of America's legal system. Subheadline, the kids didn't grow out of it. She hands her platform over to Erin Sibarium, who's a journalist, and she begins with a little note, a note to the reader, which I'm going to read to you in a second, but first, This comes in the context of the mess, the melee at Yale Law School that we talked about last week, where there was a panel about the First Amendment with a conservative guest from a conservative organization and a lefty guest from a lefty organization. And they had actually taken the same position in court on a constitutional issue, and the Federalist Society brought them to Yale Law School to talk about it. And because the conservative organization is socially conservative and pro-religious liberty— and sometimes has taken positions that I would say fairly can be described as hostile to LGBT activists or LGBT rights. There was a massive hubbub at Yale Law School about the circumstances surrounding this panel. 
that someone from Alliance Defending Freedom could step foot on campus and be given a microphone was too much for some of these supposedly elite law students to bear. So they showed up. They shouted this person down. They carried on. They were eventually thrown out of the room and then were screaming and shrieking and pounding on the walls just outside of the room as to drown out what was being said inside the hall. We told you about that. There's been a little skirmish about it on social media. It's certainly a big story in New Haven at Yale. But this goes to a radical intolerance. That is not just a fringe movement of a small percentage anymore. It is increasingly dominant in some of these places. And then that mentality is being exported elsewhere in our society and elsewhere within the legal community. And that is extremely alarming. And that's what Barry Weiss gets to in her little introductory paragraph. She says, if you're a common sense reader, you are by now highly aware of the phenomenon of institutional capture. From the start, we have covered the ongoing saga of how America's most important institutions have been transformed by an illiberal ideology and have come to betray their own missions, medicine, Hollywood, education. The reason we exist, she writes, is because of the takeover of newspapers like The New York Times. So we've lost a lot, a whole lot, but at least we haven't lost the law. That's how we've comforted ourselves. The law would be the bulwark against this nonsense. The rest we could work on building anew. But what if the country's legal system was changing just like everything else? Today, Aaron Sabarium, a reporter who has consistently been ahead of the pack on this beat, offers a groundbreaking piece on how the legal system in America, as one prominent liberal scholar put it, is at risk of becoming a totalitarian nightmare. So I'm just going to read excerpts from this because it's a very long piece and you can go check it out for yourself. But we'll start in law schools. Sabarium writes, the politicization and tribalism of campus life have crowded out old-fashioned expectations about justice and neutrality. The imperatives of race, gender, and identity are more important to more and more law students than due process, the presumption of innocence, and all the norms and values at the foundation of what we think of as the rule of law. Critics of those values are nothing new, of course, and certainly they are not new at elite law schools. Critical race theory, as it came to be called in the 1980s, began as a critique of a neutral principle of justice. The argument went like this. Since the United States was systemically racist, since racism was baked into the country's political, legal, and economic and cultural institutions, neutrality, the conviction that the system should not seek to benefit any one group, camouflaged and even compounded that racism. He's describing, summarizing critical race theory, the narrow definition, not the broader umbrella of race essentialism and racial curricula. He says, under CRT in law schools, the only way to undo it, to undo the harm, was to abandon all pretense of neutrality and to be unneutral. It was to tip the scales in favor of those who never had a fair shake to start with. But critical race theory, until quite recently, only had so much purchase in legal academia. At first, the conventional wisdom held that it was just a few college kids, a few spoiled snowflakes who would grow out of it when they reached the real world and became serious people. This is something I've been warning about now for years, this mistaken assumption. That did not happen, Sabarium writes. Instead, the undergraduates, 
clung to their ideas about justice and injustice. They became medical students and law students. Then 2020 happened. All of a sudden, critical race theory was more than mainstream in America's law schools. It was mandatory. Starting this fall, Georgetown Law School will require all students to take a class on the importance of, quote, questioning the law's neutrality and assessing its differential effects on subordinated groups. That's according to university documents obtained by Common Sense. UC Irvine School of Law, University of Southern California, Gold School of Law, Yeshiva University's Cardozo School of Law, and Boston College Law have also implemented similar requirements. Professors say it is harder to lecture about cases in which rapists are acquitted or a police officer is found not guilty of abusing his authority. One criminal law professor at a top law school told me he's even stopped teaching theories of punishment because of how negatively students react to retribution, the view that punishment is justified because criminals deserve to suffer. Quote, I got into this job because I like to play devil's advocate, said the tenured professor who identifies as a liberal. I can't do that anymore. I have a family. The implication being he fears for his job because he understands what the mob is capable of. This story goes on. Other law professors, several of whom asked me not to identify their institution, their area of expertise, or even their state of residence, were similarly terrified. Here's one who goes on the record, Nadine Strassen, the first woman to head the ACLU and a professor at New York Law School, told me, quote, I massively self-censor. I assume that every single thing that is said, every facial gesture, is going to be recorded and potentially disseminated to the entire world. This is the first woman to run the ACLU. And she says that she self-censors aggressively out of fear. All of this has come as a shock, the story says, to many law professors who had long assumed that law schools wouldn't cave to the new orthodoxy. At a Heterodox Academy panel discussion in December of 2020, Harvard Law School professor Randall Kennedy said that until recently, he thought fears of law schools becoming illiberal, shutting down unpopular views or voices, had been overblown. Quote, I've changed my mind, said Kennedy. I think there is a really big problem. The problem has come not just from students, but from administrators who often foment the forces they capitulate to. Administrators now outnumber faculty at some universities. Yale, for example. And the distinction between diversity, equity, and inclusion and the rest of the administration is often wafer thin. At Yale Law School, the Office of Student Affairs told students in a recent email that they could, quote, swing by the office to grab a critical race theory T-shirt. The T-shirt repeated the phrase reparations and prison abolition five times, Bart Simpson style, before delivering the kicker, critical race theory and Yale Law School. So here's the administration at Yale Law encouraging their students to come get some free T-shirts they had made up that advocate reparations, prison abolition and critical race theory, which are absolutely radical views, but not at Yale Law School where they are seemingly, at least in some way, endorsed by the administration as they try to educate and shape and mold the elite lawyers of tomorrow. Back to the story. As this new ideology has been institutionalized, the costs of disobeying it have grown steeper, both for faculty and for students. At the University of Illinois Chicago, for example, a law professor's classes were canceled and his career threatened for including a bleeped-out N-word on an exam 
in a hypothetical scenario about discrimination. He had used the same scenario for years without incident. Then he did it again, and the classes were canceled, and his job was threatened. Hypothetical, legal example where the offending word, a terrible word, was bleeped out. That became a career-threatening incident. This is, this is crazy. A Harvard law professor tells me that students face, quote, social death if they buck the consensus. Students at other elite law schools, Yale, NYU, Georgetown, Northwestern, told me much the same thing. You want to have friends so you don't say anything controversial, one Georgetown law student explained. At Boston College Law School this semester, a constitutional professor asked students, who does not think we should scrap the Constitution? This is a B.C. law. Show of hands, how many of you law students here at this law school believe that we should not scrap the U.S. Constitution and start over? According to a student present in the class, not a single person raised their hand. Now, some of the people obviously didn't believe we should scrap the Constitution, but they were too afraid to admit it in a room full of other law students with some radicals in there who truly believe the Constitution is evil and needs to go. And therefore, you had a room filled with these people, none of whom would admit that they actually support keeping the Constitution of the United States intact. So that's law schools. But what about law firms and the law itself? Those institutions are also being threatened by this same pernicious poison. And I will continue with this piece published by Barry Weiss, written by Aaron Sabarium, when we come back after this break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for tuning in. We are reading from this piece published by Barry Weiss, written by Aaron Sabarium, which coincides with the whole dust-up, the kerfuffle at Yale Law School, illustrating and chronicling how the hard left, the progressive woke left, is trying to engage in institutional capture, not just in academia, but of the American legal system itself. We just talked about and read from the passages about law schools. What about law firms and the practice of law? Here's what the story writes. The idea that lawyers can't be neutral, that confronting injustice must supersede all else, has eroded the norm that legal representation is something every American deserves. Quote, partners in law firms are being blindsided by associates who they think are liberals in their own image, an attorney in Washington, D.C. told me, but they're not. The associates want to burn the place down. These are older liberal partners with the younger radical associates who want to burn down the institutions. Lawyers at top law firms in New York, D.C., Los Angeles say they fret constantly about saying the wrong thing or taking on the wrong client. Quote, it's much worse than McCarthyism, says Alan Dershowitz, professor emeritus at Harvard Law. McCarthyism, he says, was a reflection of dying old views. They were not the future. But the people today who are imposing litmus tests for who they represent, they are the future. Since 2011, law firms have been pressured to drop or turn down a long list of clients, fossil fuel companies, foreign universities, a GOP-controlled House of Representatives, employers challenging vaccine mandates, and, of course, Donald Trump. These pressures, both internal and external, have had a chilling effect. 
If defending anti-vaxxers can cost you business, law firms reason, imagine the blowback of defending a transphobe or a racist. Quote, it doesn't even occur to people to take controversial cases, one lawyer in D.C. said. Religious liberties cases, for example, are, quote, totally off the table. I wouldn't even think to bring it up. Another lawyer who specializes in First Amendment litigation described being forced to turn away a client with far-right views because the firm thought any association with the client, even if the claims advanced were meritorious, would be bad for business. Now, I remember, and actually it's an issue in the confirmation hearings right now happening for the Supreme Court nominee, when lefty lawyers raced to represent al-Qaeda terrorists at Guantanamo Bay, citing this grand tradition in American law, all the way back to John Adams, that even deeply unpopular clients need rigorous and deserve and have a right to rigorous representation. And they said, we might not like these terrorists, but damn it, we're going to defend them because that's the American way. Those same big law firms and law schools that were cheering on people defending al-Qaeda clients and defendants, and I agree that under our system, everyone deserves a defense, they are saying we cannot countenance anyone that we're associated with taking on clients that we find to be unwoke. Now, Islamist terrorists certainly are unwoke, but they sort of have a special carve-out on the woke totem pole of privilege. But, you know, very conservative or right-wing people, that is something that they cannot handle, that they cannot abide. And therefore, these litmus tests occur, and there's a lot of self-censorship and self-selection happening out there. Last note from this piece, published by Barry Weiss. Just a few years ago, the American Bar Association nearly passed a motion that would urge state legislatures to adopt a new definition of consent in sexual misconduct cases that would flip the burden of proof from the accuser to the accused, just turning it on its head, the presumption of innocence. It looked like they were going to pass this motion. A few people then backed away. It failed, but nearly 40 percent of the American Bar Association, before it's been completely radicalized with a new generation, voted for that proposition. It's not just undergrads. It's not just law students. It is law firms and the law itself. Our fundamental principles and systems under attack by the woke left, which is why we focus on these issues as often as we do. It is a clear and present danger to the republic. We lighten things up next on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Continuing here in the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition. Thank you for tuning in. As promised, it's time for Woke Tales. We have a few examples to bring you that are a bit lighter, still disturbing, but not quite as weighty and sobering as what we just discussed in the last few segments. Here's one via Robbie Suave, writing at Reason.com. There is a queer female author who grew up in a very conservative household in kind of like a doomsday cult type environment. And she's gay. She later joined the military while Don't Ask, Don't Tell was still in effect. And she has written a book. She's gone on the speaking circuit. 
and she was recently informed that she was a finalist, her book was a finalist, for a Lammy Award, L-A-M-M-Y, from the Lambda Literary Foundation, which is an organization for LGBT writers and readers. So she was nominated for this Lammy Award, and she was very excited. Alas, says Robbie Suave, it was not meant to be. Lambda informed this woman, whose name is Lauren Huff, that it had decided to withdraw her nomination due to, quote, Twitter disputes last week. So sorry to pass this news along, wrote a representative for Lambda in an email to Huff. Now, the Twitter disputes in this case involved Huff defending one of her friends, Sandra Newman, who is a young adult fictional novelist and apparently is non-binary, wrote a book called The Men, which ran afoul. The premise of this fictional book upset certain very loud transgender activists on social media. And so the extremely radical, narrow, woke mob, and these are some of the most radical people out there, decided to come down hard on this woman, Sandra Newman, for writing this fiction book that they didn't like. And they were calling Newman transphobic. I guess you can be a leftist, non-binary author, but if you write the wrong thing in a fictional book and a premise about men and people with certain chromosomes, you have to be canceled. So the mob was in full throat coming after this woman who Hoff, the woman nominated for a prize, is friends with. So she defended her friend, saying... It's not fair to come after her this way. She said, I told them to read the book before condemning it. I told them characters and plot don't necessarily reflect the politics or views of an author. I told them, read the bleeping book or don't. Well, that wasn't good enough. Because she was deemed to be aiding and abetting transphobia by defending her friend for writing the fictional book that she did, The mob then shifted to her. So now the targets were growing. They were expanding. And Lambda caught up in the crossfire here, a bunch of woke, sniveling, terrified radicals themselves. They decided to withdraw the nomination for a Lammy Award from this woman and her book because she was defending another woman or non-binary person and her book against scurrilous overheated, hysterical charges of transphobia. So this is like a blast radius situation where the mob is trying to explode and destroy one person and even stepping up to defend that person by urging people to not be so sensitive and understand that there has to be artistic license in fiction writing and urging people to actually read a book rather than get mad about something you think you know about That was deemed a cancelable offense, and therefore this award nomination is gone. And Lauren Huff says, I'm a queer woman, and I was silenced for most of my life. And now here she is, attacked again, this time from her left. And I've said this before, I think some of the people who are most vulnerable to cancellation are people who live in left-wing circles and operate within that orbit. 
because if you buy into the left-wing, hardcore, progressive, woke premises on some level, if these are the people that you're constantly tiptoeing around and that's your milieu, you are the closest person where they can grab a club and beat you with it, which is why everyone over there seemingly in these types of institutions constantly walking on eggshells, worried about what they might say, what they might admit, what they might accidentally convey in some way that could blow their lives up. And there's a lot of people just itching to detonate that TNT. Even for people supposedly from their own communities on their own side, even in some cases, their supposed friends. Now, I think we have some of this bad impulse on the right. Of course, we have leftists who come after the right and try to get us canceled. But at least on the conservative side, when leftists show up with pitchforks and torches, metaphorically or literally, we've got a lot of people on this side willing to vociferously defend us and each other against this stuff, give us at least a fighting chance. Whereas on the left, once you've been marked for cancellation, people scatter. And all of a sudden, you're very alone watching your life and your reputation and your name dragged through the mud by your fellow comrades. Is this a way that you want to live your life? I ask my liberal friends. And if not, you don't have to become conservative necessarily, but you've got to do what Barry Weiss is doing and fight these illiberal people. Here's one more story in the Woke Tales catalog, and it comes to us via Jason Rance. You see him all the time on Fox. He comes on this show. He's got a show on our great affiliate out in Seattle, KTTH. A Seattle group is hosting racially segregated theater performances and has received a hundred grand in tax dollars to support the program. A Seattle-based theater company hosts performances of Shakespeare that are meant to be racially segregated. The organization collectively received over a hundred grand in tax dollars since 2021. The Seattle Shakespeare Company provides year-round performances of Shakespeare. Great. Organizationally, the company says it is committed to being inclusive, which requires them to uproot systemic harm by undertaking new practices and continually examining them. Or why don't you just perform Shakespeare? Seattle Shakespeare Company. I know, novel thought. Nope, but this, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the hour, where these institutions captured by the hard left decide that they must performatively fight injustice, however broadly they define that, with everything that they do, which creates a scenario where there's often a significant departure from the actual mission of the organization. So with this example, in this case, one of the tools to be more inclusive at the theater are hosting performances that are exclusively for the so-called BIPOC community, black, indigenous, people of color, where they want segregated audiences, where they want certain performances only attended by people of color, and they're asking white people, in the name of inclusivity and equity, not to show up. Now, I think legally they probably can't bar white people from buying a ticket and showing up. That would be illegal. 
obvious racism, but they are heavily pressuring white people not to attend these inclusive, equitable performances where white people can't be there. And think about it. If you're a white person living in Seattle, do you want to be one of the people who decides to show up and violate this sort of soft but very real enforcement of the rule where people are taking little photos of you, posting it on their Twitter feed or their Instagram story? Look at this racist who decided not to agree with segregation. Do you want that headache? I don't think so. And so we have these so-called brown-out matinees. The most recent one was Sunday, March 13th, where they only want people with certain skin colors to attend performances of Shakespeare plays like Hamlet and As You Like It. Quote, so that Seattle's BIPOC community can come together. So this is another example. We've seen this in the academy as well. Enforced modern-day segregation in the name of equity and inclusion and racial justice. It is taking common sense and moral rectitude when it comes to race relations, flipping it 180 and calling that enlightened. And anyone who disagrees, a racist. This is just uh, right down the pipe when it comes to a woke tale story. So thanks and hat tip to Jason Rance for sending it our direction. When we come back, the home stretch on The Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday edition. That's straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch. It's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts if you miss any of the show from 3 to 6 Eastern. Well, it's absolutely gorgeous weather here in D.C. And with the warmer weather comes a certain season in this town, which is cherry blossoms season. With the beautiful blooming flowers on these trees all along the Potomac River. It's very pretty. And it's so pretty that many, 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 many people want to go look at these trees, look at the cherry blossoms, and take photos. And people want to get that little Instagram photo where they've got the cherry blossoms in the foreground and then the Jefferson Memorial in the background. you got the Tidal Basin. I mean, I feel like someone should just go take that photo and then send it to anyone else who wants it. Feel free to use it. We all know what it looks like. You don't have to crowd down to the waterfront and all take that exact same photograph. But people do it. People like it. I don't begrudge them that experience, but the traffic is bad. The foot traffic gets crazy. Yesterday, another one of these trucker convoys was coming through, so that really disrupted my commute into the old studio, surrounded by honking trucks. Then you see... The waterfront is completely packed. I know Quiet Wyatt enjoys the cherry blossoms, not so much the crowds, and it's interfered with your ability to get Chick-fil-A, which I know uh, you don't want to get between Quiet Wyatt and his Chick-fil-A. He'll turn into War Wyatt real quick. Yes, Guy. It's, it's been um, 
very crowded here in D.C. Ever since the weather started to pick up, there's people planning vacations and class trips. And so it is it's D.C. is back. Do you avoid the crowds by taking your constitutionals at 430 a.m.? And can you really enjoy the cherry blossoms before the sun is out? Just use your your the light on your phone and you could just <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> just like throw a filter on there. It'll be fine. Now, speaking of D.C., you pass along, Wyatt, this poll, which I think is ridiculous. They asked the American people about television shows and fictional portrayals of D.C. and politics. And the question was, which one is the most representative or realistic of how D.C. works? And what, the number one answer was West Wing? Is that right? Yep, it was West Wing. Are you kidding me? Like, in fairness, confession, I have never seen even a full episode of the West Wing. But I've seen bits of it. I know people who really like it. But this is an Aaron Sorkin project that just idealizes Washington, where you have this sort of munificent Democratic president. Of course, he's a Democrat who is just in politics for all the right reasons. And he's surrounded by all these wonderful people with tremendous intellect and motives. And they're all just in it for the public good. And I can tell you that is absolutely not how Washington, D.C. operates. That's not the type of person that politics typically attracts, which is too bad. There's lots of great people in politics in it for good reasons. There's a lot of people who are not. And the West Wing is kind of like a sanitized, airbrushed, center-left dream of what politics ought to be. It is not a reflection of reality. And I think even a lot of fans of West Wing will admit that. Now, some people will argue that House of Cards is more realistic. I'm not sure about that. House of Cards, I mean, House of Cards suggests far too much competence. Where ruthless, manipulative calculation can achieve ends that the schemers want. But in reality, Washington is much more chaotic and incompetent than that. So I think there are probably people just as bad as the Underwoods, for example, in this town, in positions of significant power. But their ability to get what they want the way that the Underwoods did in that show, not realistic, which brings us to a point that many others have made before. This is not original to me at all. But Veep with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, it's exaggerated. It's not spot on, but it's a lot closer than those other two shows to how Washington really works in politics and the people in politics. It's a lot of self-absorbed, myopic, power-hungry, often incompetent, sometimes comically so, people who play games with each other in a bad way and just sort of careen from one dysfunctional mess to another. That's a lot closer to how D.C. really works. And in fact, the character Selena Meyer, new Selena now, and her various travails as a hapless vice president, they actually do sort of remind a lot of us of a real-life character 
in that exact position that she played and portrayed in the HBO show. Well, this is real life right now. Cut 39. The significance of the passage of time. It is time for us to do what we have been doing. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. (laughs) (laughs) There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. Thank you, Madam Vice President. I was talking to a friend last night who said, Kamala Harris, you know, when you're speaking publicly, sometimes you have to gather your thoughts and use filler words before you can get to the point that you want to make. Her observation was Kamala Harris, most of what she says is just filler words. And the result is the mashup that you just heard. A little giggle there at the end. That's a lot closer to Veep than the other shows that I mentioned. I would say West Wing would be at the bottom of the list. That's just me. You can agree or disagree. We got to run. Back here tomorrow for The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.